0: Good morning. I am a thankful man today. I am thankful to be part of this congregation that I love. I'm thankful to serve on a wonderful staff, and I'm thankful that we get sabbaticals every seven years. And I've just had my first and probably my last. But it was good. I I was... My, my two goals were refreshment in the Lord and fruitfulness in the Lord, and I believe that by God's grace, some of that happened. So thank you for praying for me. Um, as I went through this six-week sabbatical, with, which went just like that, I, I was aware of a deep recurring longing in me. Sometimes I thought I was longing for more knowledge. There's so much to know about the Bible and about counseling and about Just walking with the Lord. And sometimes I I thought it was for more wisdom and or or Lord, integrate all this, integrate what I'm learning from Romans and Proverbs and marriage counseling and how to be a church that cares for the sexually abused. But I realized that it was more than that. What I was longing for was the the bread of life. I was longing for the living word. I was longing for rivers of living water. I was longing for communion with the triune God. And about halfway through my sabbatical, about three weeks in, I one morning I was sitting out on the picnic table. The staff will tell you that I, I do that a lot in the summer. And I I wasn't planning on reading this psalm, but I felt led to read Psalm 36. And I, I'd like to ask you to pick up your Bibles right now, and let's let's read that together. It's going to be our text today. And this psalm gave me words for what I was longing for. Psalm 36, the Psalm of David, 12 verses. David says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. This was not the part that I felt like was my deep longing. <clears throat> but this part. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights." For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This psalm, which, by the way, I believe... Verses 5 through 9 are among the most exquisite poetry ever written, not just in the Bible, but in the whole world. These verses gave me the words for what I was longing for. I was longing for the king's feast. Nothing else will satisfy me. And I believe that's what you long for too. And this is really appropriate today because in just a little while, we're going to come to the Lord's table, which we believe is a pledge and foretaste of the King's Feast. So what we're going to do is work through this psalm in three parts. First of all, verses 1 through 4, we're going to look at the way of the wicked. That's not fun, but there's always a dark backdrop to the Lord's grace and the King's Feast. And we're going to spend most of our time in verses 5 through 9, and we're going to look at the glory of the King's Feast, and we're going to relate that to our coming to the table today. And then just very briefly at the end, verses 10 through 12, a brief prayer of the righteous. So let's pray right now for the Lord's blessing on his word, and then we'll look at verses 1 through 4. Our Father, you are great beyond all worlds. Your grace is spectacular. Your holiness is unfathomable. Your mercy is tender and gracious. And Lord, these are your very words inspired by the Holy Spirit 3,000 years ago in the sweet singer of Israel, David. So would you take these words today and would you write them on our hearts and would we know tongues of fire? Would we know rivers of living water? Would we know a mighty rushing wind of your glory. Lord, stagger us today with your holiness and your goodness. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So what is it like to live in the world? What is it like to be an unbeliever? What is it like to be outside the King's Feast? The Bible calls it the way of the wicked, That's strong language. It may even offend you today. But it's how the Lord describes those who are outside of Christ. And I see five parts to that way of the wicked. First of all, there is a voice. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. That word his can be translated deep in my heart. So that means we all need to listen today. Sin has a voice. It speaks deep in our hearts. It's being transmitted by the world and the flesh and the devil, and it's broadcasting on all stations all the time. See, trouble always starts in the heart. It always starts with deceitful and destructive voices. Any voice that is speaking to you, that is not the voice of God consistent with his word, will ultimately corrupt you and mislead you and tempt you and destroy you. The way of the wicked starts with a voice. And then it leads to a veil, a veil before our eyes. It says, there is no fear of God before his eyes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. But the unbeliever, the wicked, has no true acknowledgement of God. There is no humble reverence for God. There is no glad worship of God such as we just enjoyed. The Apostle Paul says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, whenever an unbeliever encounters the Word of God a veil lies over their eyes. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So there's a voice and there's a veil. And it leads to vanity. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The unbelieving wicked are self-confident and self-sufficient. They don't believe there's any authority above them, and they can't even imagine that they would ever be held accountable for what they do. In another psalm, David says this, The fool says there is no God. So there's a voice and a veil and vanity, and then it leads to verbal violence or verbal victimizing. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. The words that the wicked speak are full of lies. They're designed to stir up division and strife. They use words to wound and manipulate and get what they want. James in the New Testament says it this way, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, and setting on fire the entire course of life. And then finally, this leads to vice. He plots trouble while on his bed and sets himself in a way that is not good. Instead of sleeping at night, the unbelieving lie awake and plot evil, and they plan how to carry out their wicked schemes. So this is the way of the wicked, the voice of sin speaking in your heart. A veil over your eyes so that you cannot see the glory of the Lord. Vanity, verbal violence, and vice. And I wonder, do any of you here this morning see yourself in that way? Now, it would be easy for us as Christians to point the finger at unbelievers, those people that who are not like us. That would be the easiest thing in the world. But the way of the wicked, brothers and sisters, still lies in our own hearts. Isn't it true that you struggle listening to all the wrong voices? Isn't it true that sometimes you're apathetic about God and you feel like your whole world revolves around you and your desires? Isn't it true that you and I still battle against troubling others and troubling ourselves and troubling our trouble with our unwholesome words? And isn't it true that we still indulge in thinking about how we're going to do what we want, when we want, no matter how it affects anyone else? This remaining sin is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. He says, I I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Brothers and sisters, it's not that unbelievers are sinners and we're not. We are, by God's grace, redeemed sinners. We're on the way to sinless perfection, but we're still a long way off. And this is important because the only ones invited and welcomed to the Lord's table to the king's feast are those who know they don't deserve to be there, that they are, in fact, unworthy. Being in touch with your own remaining wickedness is necessary today to come to the Lord's feast, to the Lord's table. So that's the way of the wicked. We have to talk about that. But let's move on to much happier things. Verses 5 through 9, the glory of of the king's feast. And here things take a surprising turn. We would have expected the psalmist to contrast the way of the wicked with the way of the righteous, like in Psalm 1. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. But that's not what we see here. Instead, we see the contrast between the way of the wicked on one hand and the glory of the Lord and the abundance of his feast on the other. So, the contrast is between the way of the wicked and the goodness of the king. So, let's look at verses 5 and 6. What is the king like who throws this feast? And again, this is beautiful truth, beautifully written. David starts by saying, your steadfast love extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Here we have two Hebrew words that are repeated often in the Old Testament. Steadfast love, hesed, and faithfulness, emeth. Steadfast love, sometimes it's translated as God's tender mercies, His unfailing love, His Loving kindness. This is God's undeserved, unchanging, unquenchable, unimaginable love, His covenant love for us in Christ. Hesed is your life, it is your security, it is your joy and hope and your deepest desire. And then Emeth, His faithfulness. This is God's unshakable an unbreakable commitment to fulfill every promise in Christ and to never leave us or forsake us until every promise has come true for every one of his children. And David said this, that extends to the heavens. Now David would have gone out on a dark night and he would have seen the blackness of the heavens and the glory and the, the, just the majesty of the stars. And he said the, the heavens declare the glory of God. And he would have instinctively known that the heavens were huge. And that's true for us too. If you can get out of the city on a clear night and look at the heavens, you just know this is really big. But we have the advantage of modern astronomy to help us get even a better sense of how far the heavens extend. If you talk about distances in our own solar system, our own little corner of the universe, the distances are huge. Like our Earth is 93 million miles from the sun, and we're one of the closer planets. If you get to the outer giant planets, it's, it's just really huge. But if you get outside our solar system, the distances are so huge that they're, they're astronomical. You have to use different words like light year. A light year is the distance the sun will travel in a year at 186,000 miles per second. Clue. It's 6 trillion miles. So how big is the universe? Well, astronomers say, sort of educated guesses here, that the observable universe is 92 billion light years in diameter. I don't even know what that means. It, our, our brains are, are not made to compute numbers that big. We just know it's, it's really huge. And this is what David compares God's steadfast love to. You can't reach the end of it. You can't exhaust it. You can't go beyond it. You can't even understand it. His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. That seems like a bit of a come down. Clouds are not nearly that high. But, you know, if you and I, if we all went outside right now, if there were clouds in the sky, the tallest one of you could not on tiptoe reach them and the one who could jump the highest, not me, couldn't ever even get close. David is stretching language to show us how big God's steadfast love and faithfulness is. And the, and the glory for us is you can't ever reach it. You can't ever get away from it. It's all that you could ever need or hope or imagine. And David wants you to rejoice in the steadfast love of the king. And then he says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. God's righteousness is his unimpeachable character, his commitment to always do what is right. It's his commitment to save us at no matter what cost to himself. But best of all, God's righteousness is 33 sinless years of the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was a holy embryo. He was a holy infant. He was a holy child, a holy adolescent, and a holy adult. And his sinless perfection, the righteousness of God, is given to us as a gift the moment we put our trust in Christ. That righteousness given to us is like the mountains of of God. Now, I don't know what mountains you've seen. There's mountains in Israel. There's the Alps. There's the Rockies. There's the Himalayas. What are those mountains meant to suggest? Immensity, strength, majesty, something solid, immovable, secure, and unchanging. That righteousness like the mountains of God, is yours if you're in Christ today. Now, why is that important? Because every one of us, to some degree, and some of us, to a very great degree, deals with accusations and condemnation. I want you to just raise your hand here if you deal with that, if you sometimes feel accused and condemned. There's no no shame. It's going to be all of us. But some of you, And I can be like this. Some of you, it's really intense. Sometimes that condemnation is from other people. Their words, their tone of voice, their look can be contemptuous. Sometimes it's those fiery darts of the enemy. But for some of us, it's our own conscience. Some of you are ruthless with yourself. You would never treat someone else the way you do yourself. And it's all because you don't live up to your ideal of being a Christian. And there can be just a constant cloud of condemnation. But God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is a mountain range against that condemnation. The most awe-inspiring mountains you have ever seen pale in comparison with the righteousness of God in Christ that is yours. And then David says, your judgments are like the great deep. God's judgments are his decrees and decisions from all eternity. They're his hidden purposes and secret providences in your life. They are his examination and evaluation of every human heart. And David says, these judgments are like the great deep we've just considered how high are the heavens. Now we're thinking about how deep is the deep. Well if you know, the Pacific Ocean, the deepest place on the planet is the Marianas Trench and it's about 35,000 feet down, That's way down there. Have you ever seen those shows where they send submersibles down there? And mostly what you see is black, but you know if you've ever seen those, there's some really strange things down there. But if you think about it, most of what is down there in the deeps, no one has ever seen except God. Only God has access to the depths. And it's like that in our lives, too. In 1967, my favorite rock and roll band, Buffalo Springfield, released a song that said, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. And isn't that true in your life? Sometimes there's things happening, and it's deep, and it's dark, and it's confusing, and it may be very painful. And you know God is up to something, but you don't know what it is. It ain't exactly clear. And that's why the best thing we can say to ourselves and others is, I don't understand what is happening in your life right now, but I do know the one who does, because God has access. His judgments are like the deeps, the depths. His judgments are so deep, they are not to be analyzed, but adored. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. And then David ends this section with, man and beast, you save, O God. And this is really good news. God uses his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, and his judgments to save us. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. What a God who would save us. What a God. What a Savior. But there's a bit of a little curveball here. He says, man And beast, you save, O God. What's that about? Why beast? Well, it's just a delightful little detail about God's character. God is so compassionate. He has compassion on beasts, on animals. Remember the end of Jonah? God is rebuking Jonah gently for his lack of compassion on the Ninevites. And this is what God says. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God cares about cattle, God cares about your pet. Why is that important today? Because Jesus uses that little detail and argues from the lesser to the greater to reassure us about God's care for us. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Listen to this. Are you not of more value than they? Man and beast you save, O Lord. That's what the king is like full of steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and judgments and salvation. What's his feast like? Well, we're right back where we started. It's a feast of steadfast love. David exclaims, how precious is your steadfast love, O God? We know that this love, this steadfast love, this covenant love, this saving love comes to us only through Jesus Christ. And you remember at the end of John's gospel, speaking about Jesus, it said, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Here's how John Piper describes the love of God in Christ for us. He loved us in life and he loved us in death. Having loved us in the easiest times, he loved us in the hardest times. Having loved us with words and bread and touch, he loved us with blood and pain and death. This is what we long for. This is what we have by faith, an experience of being loved with a love that lasts, that is not fickle or uncertain or capricious, but durable, constant, and stable. And brothers and sisters, that love is precious. That means it's both objectively valuable, more valuable than anything else, and subjectively satisfying. The love of God in Christ is better than life, it is stronger than death, it is more precious than jewels, and it makes us more than conquerors in all of our tribulations. And it creates a feast for us where we are finally and fully safe. David says, the children of mankind take refuge under the shadow of your wings like being under the mother hen's wings, warm and safe, welcome, a place of provision, a place of protection and comfort. And then it just keeps getting better. David says, they feast on the abundance of your house. That's where we get this idea of the king's feast. Now, what's a feast? It's kind of a meal on steroids. I was trying to think of an image of a feast and i couldn't think of one so i i had to put some together i thought of meals when i was growing up with my family my mom and dad seven brothers and sisters we didn't eat together often but on special occasions we'd all gather around the table It would be really good food and sometimes some friends and other family members and course, we all know each other. We love each other. There's laughter. There's wine for the grown-ups and 7-Up for the kids, and there's just a lot of fun. Um, But it's not really elegant like a feast because I was still wearing blue jeans at the table. So I thought about what's elegant. I thought about banquets that Judy and I go to or used to go to at Lansing Christian for the juniors and seniors. It would usually be at a nice, elegant country club and elegant surroundings and you were served food and the young ladies were in formal gowns and the guys in tuxedos and waiters and waitresses are bringing your food and the food was really good but it wasn't enough, There wasn't enough food so that wasn't quite a feast so I thought of old country buffet. You, you pay your $10 and you walk into an acre of food. There's just, there's just more food than you and your family could eat in a month. So somehow put all that together and that's a feast. Or you can create your own image. But here's the best thing about the King's Feast. And this we have on the, on the wo- authority of Jesus' words. It will be Jesus himself who serves you. It will be Jesus walking around and saying, Stephan. Would you like some more? Jason, can I get you anything?" And we'll be going, no, 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 Lord Jesus, that's not right. How could you be serving us? We should be serving you, And, and he'll say, no, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. It's my pleasure, my child, just sit back and enjoy. And then he says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. Do you know the word delight there? It's the plural of the word for Eden. We're going to drink from the river of God's Edens. The river of life flowing through the Garden of Eden, flowing out of the temple in Ezekiel 47. The rivers that Jesus talked about in John 738, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in Revelation 21, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. I, I tried to capture this, this sense of drinking in joy and life in, in some words to a song I wrote over 40 years ago. And here's just a few of the words. Over the mountain, the sun starts to rise. The light falls like dewdrops, wipes tears from their eyes. There is a river that runs its own course. They drink from it gladly, drinking life from the source. There's a place you can get to where the joy overflows. Only one can direct you. There's only one way to go. And then David ends with these words, for with you is the fountain of life, In your light do we see light. This seems to be a summary of all the delights of the King's Feast. And here's a quote by a man named Edmund Pinchbeck. I don't know anything about him other than Charles Spurgeon quoted him. He says, "'Why God shall be all and in all to us. He shall be beauty for the eye, music for the ear, honey for the taste, The full content and satisfaction of our desires, and that immediately from himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of the King's Feast, and we have a foretaste of it in just a moment in the Lord's table. And as we come to the Lord's table today, remember not only the surpassing value and preciousness of this feast, but remember the astounding cost paid by your Savior to invite you. He became a curse and went to the grave so that the Lord's steadfast love could extend to the heavens for you. He became your sin on the cross so that you could become the righteousness of God, a righteousness as majestic and durable as the mountains of God. God's ultimate judgment crushed Jesus in the depths of his wrath so that all all things might work together for your good. And Jesus cried out, I thirst so that you could feast on the abundance of God's house today and drink from the river of his delights. And then in closing, just a short prayer. We might say, "What's, what's left? He's invited the wicked and made a way for us to come and feast on the abundance of his house. The simple prayer at the end of this psalm simply says, "Oh, continue in your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. We need his feast today, but you'll need it tomorrow at six o'clock when you get up with the kids or go to work or go to class. Because if God doesn't continue in his steadfast love for us, we would abandon him in five minutes. So it covers everything. Let's pray. Mm Lord, you are glorious and good, and you offer what we need and desire above all, steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, wise judgments, refuge, abundance of grace, the river of delights, and the very fountain of life. We praise you that all of this is offered freely to us in Christ. His sinless life, his grievous suffering, His bloody sacrifice and His triumphant resurrection are the price paid, the way in, the feast of feasts. We ask only that you receive us now and feast us in Christ, and that you will continue your steadfast love to us all the days of our lives. We come, Lord. We come. Amen.